Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, and now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host A. Trunk. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New episodes every Thursday wherever you get your podcast, Be sure to subscribe so you do not miss one. And thank you for listening. And be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook page for info and updates about everything going on in my world and the world of rock. Hope you're having a good week. As I tell you every week, each and every interview you hear on the podcast all originated on my Sirius XM radio show, which is called Trunk Nation and heard live Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern, noon to 2 Pacific, Sirius XM Channel 103 Faction Talk, or on the Sirius XM app. Remember, if you can't listen in the 3 to 5 Eastern window, you can always listen on demand anytime you want on the app and also various live streams, including on the volume section of the app. So a lot of different ways to listen if you can't listen live. And as I tell you every week as well, If you are a listener of this podcast and you are based in the U.S. or Canada and you are not subscribing and listening to the show on Sirius XM, you're getting like a tiny taste of what I do on a daily basis live on the radio. So please be sure to join me for the Daily Trunk Nation. Again, Faction Talk 103, Monday through Friday, live 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time or anytime you want on the app. Got another great interview for you this week. It is with songwriter Holly Knight. If Holly Knight is not a household name to you, that's understandable because she is more behind the scenes in the music business these days. Even though she started out her career in a couple bands, uh, she has absolutely made her name and her career more behind the scenes writing 
or co-writing massive hit songs that you all know and love for some of the biggest artists and uh, just gargantuan songs like The Best by Tina Turner, Love is a Battlefield by Pat Benatar, and countless others. I always love talking to behind-the-scenes people, whether they're producers or songwriters or engineers, because you always get some really interesting perspective and stories that you probably wouldn't get otherwise. Now, I first met Holly and had her on my radio show a couple years ago in Los Angeles in the Sirius XM studios in L.A. Holly is from New York, but lives in L.A. and has for a long time. And she came in and uh, she had great, great response to her hanging in the studio with me at that particular show. Well, she came back on, this time via the phone, and she is uh, promoting a book called I Am the Warrior. She's now released an autobiography about her stories writing songs with and for artists like Pat Benatar, Tina Turner, Aerosmith, and many, many more. Kiss, she's written, uh, co-written many songs with. And she's, uh, her book is great. And she's really a, a great person, nice person. Enjoy our conversations when we get a chance to talk. And really funny story, uh, the interview you're about to hear, which again, originated on the radio show live a, a few weeks ago. After I did this interview with Holly, I went out to dinner later on that night with some friends. And as I'm sitting there and my friends were talking to me about the show because they listened and uh, we were talking about Holly and all the songs she's written. We're in this restaurant and the music system, three songs in a row came on that were written by Holly Knight. <laughs> so I had a texter. I'm like, this is pretty funny. It's it's like, you know, we just talked about your songs and and how they're just everywhere. And here we are uh, having dinner. I'm having dinner with friends and three of them in a row came right on the music system. So she got a kick out of that. So really cool. I've always had a, a great interest in songwriting and the art of it and the people that have the knack for it to always create hit songs and Holly is certainly one of those people, and her book is a really cool read. So if you get a chance, be sure to check it out. So without further ado, this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, my conversation from my Sirius XM radio show a few weeks ago with songwriter Holly Knight. Enjoy. How are you, Holly? Good to talk to you again. I'm great. How are you? I'm great, and congratulations on the book. You know, you and I were in touch a couple weeks ago. I said, I want to, before I talk to you, I want to have a chance to read the book, and I did and I really, really enjoyed it. How's the response been so far? It's been unbelievably good. Um, I haven't had any negative responses yet. Of course, that'll happen at some point, right? Um, or uh, maybe not. Know. Maybe, maybe not. not. Hopefully think, not. You know, I, you know, I wrote it from a woman's perspective, and I fully expected women to connect with it. But my male friends and my rocker friends and my rock star friends they're loving it. They're texting me saying, I can't put it down. It's it's raw and it's brutal and it's funny and it's honest. And that really tickles me. So it's for everybody, really. Oh, totally. Yeah, I completely loved it. And, you know, I've when I spoke to you last time, I'm I'm just super fascinated, always have been at the art of writing songs and the people that do it so well and have had such great success. Uh, doing it and you certainly are one of those people you know I'm interested in the differences for you being a songwriter writing lyrics writing music and then writing a book 
How was it different for you? And, and how did you enjoy the process of, of like writing a book and writing in that perspective versus writing songs? It's actually easier in a way for me because there's only one thing and that's just writing the words. Whereas with music, you have to come up with good music and then you have to match it with really good lyrics and it's a marriage, you know? So in that way, it was actually easier. It was more sort of linear, you know? Uh, but I learned some things along the way. And, and the good thing was when I was first starting out writing the book, I had someone tell me that, uh, whose opinion I really uh, respected, that I shouldn't have a ghostwriter. I shouldn't write it with someone. I shouldn't have someone write it that I was a writer and to just, you know, dive in on the deep end and own it. And I did. And I'm so glad I did. Um, and, and I learned things along the way, you know, how to sort of what was I going to focus on? Because I think a lot of memoirs sort of meander and they go through someone's whole life. And it was sort of like when I write hit songs and I, and I have to write the hooks and the things that draw people in, I had to have a hook with the book, you know, Oh, that rhymes. <laughs> anyway, there you go. Um, yeah, the consummate songwriter still. <laughs> <laughs> so the hook was the MTV years. I mean, the subtitle is my crazy life writing the hits and rocking the MTV 80s. And I focused on that decade by design um, rather than sort of going on what happened afterwards. I'm mean, going to kind of throw in at the end the afterwards, as you know, like the other things that happened to me. But I wanted to really write about this period, which was so crazy and so special and so rock and roll because it's changed so much. You know, I miss all the rock bands that were out there having hits and doing well. You know, as you know, it's changed mm -hmm. a lot. And um, I miss a lot about it. So my hope is that whoever reads it, if they were there, you certainly were. You were right in the midst of it. And mm -hmm. I used to watch your, your uh, metal show all the time. I loved it because it was such a guy show to me, you know. Um, <laughs> Thanks. No, and you, and you know your facts. I mean, you really, you're very, very accurate and you ask really great questions. And um, anyway, this interview is about thank me. You. So, <laughs> yeah, well, so, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. I, you know, I wanted people that had been there to sort of feel nostalgic and go, yeah, I remember that. And I remember when I kissed that girl and this song was playing or that song was playing, or maybe it was Love is a Battlefield, you know. And then for people that weren't alive yet, my hope is that they're going to read this and go, you know, I wish I wish it was like that now or I wish I had lived that because um, my copy editor read it and said, you know, this is like a love letter to the 80s. And it, and it really is you know very much so i think yeah i do i do too and i'm i've thought it was great that you talked about your earlier years although it is 80s centric the earlier mm -hmm. years what you evolved from to become this songwriter is interesting because for people that don't know it was about initially you being in a band and wanting to be in a band and being in a band and uh, a band that started out i i guess under the name siren and there's for my audience, which has a lot of Kiss fans in it, back then Ace Freely was hanging out with Anton Fig, who was your drummer and who you were dating at the time. And then you said Ace actually wrote your logo early on for that band. <laughs> Siren came up with the logo for it, which evolved into Spider, right? The band Spider. Exactly. So, so that evolved into that. And then of course you you started out, put out a couple records and what have you, but that transition from being wanting to be a musician being a keyboard player in that band being in a band and then transitioning it to saying you know what i'm actually going to be 
a songwriter. I'm going to actually get behind the scenes and write songs for other people. I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Holly, but to me, that would feel like a really, a, a really important shift where you, the, when you're in a band and you're performing and you're in the photos and you're in the videos and everybody sees and hears you, if the band is successful, it, it takes somebody that really can, I, I would think check their ego to some degree and say, you know what? I'm okay. Not being that person. I'm okay. Being the person that unless you read the liner notes, you may not know about, but is actually crafting all these hits for other people. Was that a hard transition for you early on in your career to change gears like that? Not at all, because um, except for the part of actually making the records and knowing that you had a record deal and the playing live, which I loved, because I was a serious musician. I mean, I started when I was four. I took classical piano for 10 years. Um, my mother was grooming me to be a classical pianist. And by the time I discovered rock music, that was it. And the louder, the better. And the harder and tougher, the better. Um, but so in my mind, when I helped, I actually helped form the band Spider. Um, you know, it's sort of like, uh, it, for people that have been in bands, it's like a marriage. There's a lot of dysfunctional shit going on. And I, um, I didn't really like doing the part of doing the photos and the, you know, interviews, which oddly enough, now I'm back to doing all that. Right. <laughs> but it's, I'm a lot older and it's like, I've kind of relaxed with the whole thing, you know, but I liked being behind the, the scenes and I figured, you know, I had already, when I made the decision, I talk about in the book to, to do this full time. I, I didn't really, it was never really about the ego. It was just about, here's what I'm good at. I mean, let's face it. I've worked with some of the, the most incredible singers, you know, whether it's Lou Graham or Steven Tyler or Ann Wilson or Pat Benatar, or, you know, whatever. I've worked with the best. And it's like, if I was as good as that, I would have been a singer, you know, but I knew that my strength was songwriting. And I had a couple of hits before I actually decided to say, this is what I do. I'm an independent songwriter. And then, you know, because maybe I had been in bands, I sort of was into fashion and I was sort of like, I thought of myself as a rock star anyway, you know, I was just a songwriter rock star. And as it turns out, when I moved to California and Mike Chapman, who was a well-known producer and I had signed to his record label with Spider, he sat me down and he said, you know, there's a lot of really great musicians out there and they're good but that's a technical job. It's not the same as creating something out of nothing. And if you're good at songwriting, which you are, I would choose to be that. That's more special if you can do it well. The, you know, the funnel gets smaller um, as you go up the ladder of how successful you can be, but you have a shot. And the, he said to me that the music business, the people, the A&R people, they looked at songwriters like they were royalty. So he said, it's, it's, great and you can have a life and you can go from band to band instead of just one band and that just suited me fine yeah and mike mike chapman who's a legendary figure in in music as far as a producer songwriter uh, had a record label and all of that he he had a very important role in your career right both as a collaborator and uh, as you said early on uh, as a as a label rep for your label for your first band Oh, absolutely. And he was my mentor. I was like the young protege and everybody was fascinated because he was 
aligning himself with this young girl. You know, it wasn't like he was working with, with a young man. He was working with a young girl. And, and for some reason, that was fascinating because it was sort of like I was the anomaly at the time. There weren't really many of us doing that, and especially, you know, writing rock music. And I think because I had been in a band and I understood the mentality of that and because I could really, really play well, um, you know, I think that it sort of equipped me to understand when I started working with bands how to be comfortable around them and how for them to be comfortable with me, you know. Um, so I never, maybe once or twice in my entire career, I felt like one of those Me Too moments, but really not, you know. I mean, I was never a victim. I think once people figured out that I knew what I was talking about, sometimes I had to show them how it was done, they respected that and they treated me like a peer, which was, that was very empowering. You, you talk about uh, in the book, your collaborations and a lot of your co-writes are with Mike Chapman. And you talk about how you do like to collaborate when you write with one other person, but sometimes you feel if it gets beyond one other songwriter, it, it muddies up the water. So you like to have one other person to create with, uh, do you, have you written, I imagine you have, but I'm not sure. Have you ever do you have writing credits where you are the sole songwriter? Have you written a lot of stuff just completely alone? Or do you always feel like you need that other collaborator? No, I, I wrote Change, which John Waite had a hit with on my own. Um, I wrote One of the Living, which was a big hit for Tina Turner that was in the Mad Max movie on my own. And um, I think as I got older, I just started, like now I pretty much mostly write on my own because I just, I guess, it works for me now. I have plenty to say. I, I'm, I take the lyrics more seriously back then. Um, I guess when I started writing with Mike, he was such a power tool with lyrics. And I, I learned so much from him that we, you know, we both brought something to the table. I was more sort of sophisticated musically, and he was more sophisticated when it came to the lyrics. So that's when it's really nice, like when you have two power tools and they both bring something. And then what I like about collaboration is Sometimes I'll be playing something and I think it's really good. And then I keep sort of jamming on it and then I get tired of it. And the person might say, no, wait a minute, this is good. But what if we try this? And then they come up, they throw something in there and then you throw something and then you're off to the races. So I really do enjoy the process when it's the right person. You know, it's all about the chemistry, just like it is with a marriage. And if you're writing with someone and they're not, you know, look, you could be the greatest tennis player in the world. And if you're playing a game with someone that isn't hitting the balls back, you could actually play the worst game of your life. So when I'm writing, I went through so many years of record labels sending me bands that they signed for tons of money um, that couldn't write. And it was sort of like Songwriter 101 where I had to sort of, pretty much do all of it and it was weird because they'd be sitting there or they in later years they'd be sitting there on their phone texting or something and I'd go is this something you would do do you like this do you want to stop doing this and try something else and that's when I got kind of sick of it and I just started writing more on my own you know mm. you know you mentioned the song change which is known as a John Waite song which is a I love that song it's a fantastic song and you just mentioned you wrote it and that I didn't know this until I read your book. Now, you talked about your first band, Spider. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in reading the book, I did not know that Spider, because I don't really know those records, was recorded by uh, recorded change and also 
a song that became very well known for Tina Turner, who you wrote some huge stuff for, Better Be Good to Me. Both of those songs were originally Spider songs? Yeah, and I it's all in the book. I mean, what happened was when we got to the second record, I figured the first single off the first record went in the top 40. It was called New Romance. And it, it was a song, one of the earlier songs that I had written. Um, and we got to the second record and I just felt like we were missing something. So I went behind the band's back and I went to Chapman and I said, will you write a song with me for the band? Because I know we still need that single. And he said, you're right. And he said, absolutely. Which shocked me because, you know, I had always wanted to sort of write with him, but he was always so busy doing like all this stuff, like being running the label and producing Blondie and the Knack and whoever he was doing at the time that he actually never produced us. So we got Peter Coleman who had done, he was his engineer from London and he had done the Pat Benatar, the very first record he had produced some of those tracks, the one, whatever ones Mike hadn't. Um, and he said, yes. And we wrote better be good to me in a day. And I talk about this in a book because after that, I walked in the office one day and, and it had Nikki Chin's name on it. Nikki Chin was his partner. So they had a partnership that whoever wrote what, you know, it was like Lennon McCartney, they got credit. Well, mm. and I saw his name on the song and I said, Mike, why is Nikki's name on this? Because he wasn't even in the country when we wrote this. We've already recorded <laughs> And so I talk about that in the book, and I'm very honest about it, and I got his blessing to say that. Um, and it's not slander, because it's it's 100% true. And this happens a lot with writers, where they have to share writing credits with people that did nothing. You know, it's one right. of those one of those tragic things of being a songwriter. Well, after that, I vowed never again was that going to happen, you know. Um, so then we brought it to the band, and the band was kind of pissed off that I had gone behind their back to write a song and I thought well I knew they'd be pissed off but they'd get over it because it's a great song and you know to be honest had we gone on to make another record that probably would have been the direction we would have gone in because it was the coolest song out of anything we had done and it's quite it's a it, production wise it's a little different than Tina it's slower it's more druggy have you heard it have you ever seen the video no I've never heard the, I've never heard uh, the spider version of either of those songs actually I have to look it up yeah well you know, with Chains, I have to say that that's one of the few times in my career where I actually like the version that the artist recorded more than my own version. You know, it was and, and it was such a six degrees of separation because at the time, Neil Giraldo produced that record and played guitar in it. And I hadn't met Patty and um, Neil yet. Didn't know I, was, I Didn't know I would ever be working with him. And the background vocals were done by Patty Smythe. And that was another one. And I didn't know that I would end up writing one of the biggest hits of my life for her. So wow. this was sort of you know, just passing each other in the hallway for a moment. Um, but the, the version of Better Be Good to Me, there is, an, there is actually a video on YouTube of us in Germany performing it live. And it's kind of like Take a Walk on the Wild Side. It's more chill and druggy. And, you know, Tina's is very fast and it's kind of like a fanfare sort of stomping tempo, which I love too. But um, yeah, you should go check it out. I think you'd like it. And yeah, course, I, I, Anton was I, amazing. yeah, I absolutely will. You know, the other thing I want to mention about your early part of your career here that's in the book, which um, I'm not sure if I knew this uh, when we talked last. So 
we I knew that you were one of the co-writers on a Kiss song called Hide Your Heart that I like a lot that ended up being covered by a bunch of different people and unfortunately didn't become a hit for any of them but was is really still a great song. And and then you have uh you had some co-writes on Psycho Circus which I didn't know in, including a a song that I always thought should have been like a great sports anthem or something called Raise Your Glasses. Yep. Yeah, th- that's like the hit that didn't happen, in my opinion. I would have ran with that back in 96 if I was them. But, um, I know, and then Pink came out, like, you know, a decade later with that song, like, about raising your glasses, you know? Yes. And I thought, you know, they should have put that out. That would have been a goldmine at every sports arena, you know? Yeah, it should have been marketed to sports when somebody wins a championship or whatever. It It's still, I mean, sometimes songs 25 years later still get that status. But, I, yeah, I was really surprised. I didn't know you had a hand in that song. But I want to go back earlier to, to some of the stuff you've done with Kiss because I did not know this till I read your book. So there's a Kiss album that, and many of my audience's hardcore Kiss fans would know, that came out in 1980 that was not commercially successful in America and a very pop-leaning record by Kiss standards called called Unmasked. And in the book, you tell the story that, you know, the, the thing on that record is there's keyboards all over it. And those that's you playing those keyboards uncredited. I had no idea. You know, it's funny. Like I knew, well, it was, it, it was amazing because I was in the lounge at the record plant, you know, talk about being in the right place at the right time, but we had the same manager. We'd already played on some demos, uh, that Gene had done, which he actually released on the vault a few years ago. Um, And he just came up and he knew I played keyboards. Um, We all kind of hung out together. Like we'd run into each other at SIR. A lot of it had to do with the fact that Anton had worked with Kiss and he'd worked with Ace Freely and we had the same manager at this point. So we were kind of buds, you know, and he said, do you want to come play on a track? And at first I, I, I was kind of stunned. I looked at him like, yeah, um, now? And he opened the door. He said, yeah, now. Like, okay. So I went in there, and he played me down the track, and I sort of played along, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to learn the song. And then he stopped, and he said, uh, give us a minute. And I saw him talking to Paul and Vinnie Poncio, who was the producer. And I thought, okay, they're shaking their heads. I probably, they didn't like it, and it's not going to work out. And he calls me in because I'm in the, you know, the recording in the studio and they're in the control room. I go back in there and he says, what are you doing the rest of the day? And I said, "Mm, not much. Nothing I can't change. Why? He says, well, we love what you just did and we want you to play on the whole record. Can you stay? And then he said, but you won't get credit. You'll get paid, but we're not, we can't give you credit. Just like they did with Anton. And and it said Peter Chris, but uh, Peter Chris never played that well and they know it. So Anton played on Dynasty, and then I couldn't wait to go back to the loft and tell him, I just played on the Kiss record. But here's the funny part. I knew because I wasn't getting credit, like, how am I going to prove this if they deny it? Well, I saved the checks they gave me. Yeah, I saw them in the book. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Those checks for 40 goddamn years. And can you believe that? Never knowing that, well, one day you're going to write a book, and you're going to leave these checks in there, you know? So it's funny. It's funny that I have this stuff. And a lot of these stories are like just funny and unbelievable. Um, and, and I know, look, because I know Kiss so well now. And, I'm, you know, we're still all friends. I mean, Gene wrote a great blurb for the book. Um, and I sent him a copy of it and everything. It, like, I know what Kiss fans are like. And I think some of them loved that direction. But 
I would say more of them hated it because they're not known for that. I mean, for them to do sort of middle of the road music is, is just kind of weird, you know, they're not known for that. So I accepted that. I didn't care that for me, even though I didn't get credit, everybody knew and found out what, who I was because of it, because, you know, the kiss army, they're like diehard fans. They know everything. So yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I mean, at that point, at that point, Kiss was in such a weird transitionary phase. As a as a more pop leaning record, I actually like that record very much. But it was a little different. Just the idea of Kiss coming to you and saying, "Hey, we want you to put keyboards all over a record." I would think you're thinking, "Wait a minute, is, do I have the right band here?" You know, because there's you know hardly what? any keyboards in Kiss records. But not only that, think about this. Okay, these guys were such misogynist, sort of like chauvinist, like. They were priding themselves on bedding like thousands of women and keeping polarized of them. And, you know, so my image, my thought of, of, you know, who they were was completely disrupted when they hired me, a woman, to come in and play. I thought that was so cool. It was so forward thinking. So, you know, um, there's a lot to be said for that, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and also, Gene was really good at encouraging new acts. I mean, he discovered Van Halen, right? And right. Um, he was just very supportive of Spider. Uh, he's always been supportive of, of everything. And, and, and I think he was really happy when he saw that I was becoming a famous, successful songwriter. And then Paul started coming to me for songs. I also wrote, on, wrote with Paul for his solo record. Mm -hmm. So, so I want I want to ask you about a few other songs here in in the time that we have because there's just so much and it's such great stuff. Again, the book is called "I Am the Warrior" and it's Holly Knight's memoir. And more detail about all these stories is certainly in the book. But recently, long overdue, and I screamed and yelled about this for years, but finally, Pat Benatar is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, to to know. No coincidence, uh, in her set, when she performed, one of the songs she did is a song that is clearly among her biggest hits, and that is Love is a Battlefield, which you are a, a co-writer of. Um, it's interesting, Holly, because I was a fan of Pat's pretty much from the beginning, and I loved the heartbreaker and the heavier-edged rock that she had done. And then when I heard Love is a Battlefield... I was like, wow, it's kind of a dance thing. Like what she's going in a whole different direction here. And it was like, it wasn't really, I'll be honest with you. It really wasn't my thing. I was kind of like, you know, where's the heartbreaker Pat, you know? Um, what I found interesting is for you as a co-writer of that song, you felt the same way. You talk about in the book that when you finally heard the song done and produced, you were really taken aback that it had basically a dance vibe to it. Is that a mm -hmm. tough thing for you as a songwriter to craft something like that? And then you turn it over to producers and musicians and they take it from a sonic direction very different than what you envisioned it. I mean, you, you mentioned that for this song in particular, it was really shocking to you when you heard the finished product. Oh, yeah, it's 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 heartbreaking and it doesn't happen that often. Um, it's just that this was one of my biggest songs. And as I talk about in the book, we gave them an anthem. I mean, Neil likes to say it was a ballad. It was not a ballad. I almost never write ballads. It was an eighth note feel, and it was mid-tempo, which is sort of one of my stamps. And it was uh, like an anthem that was like 
I think I described as meat and potatoes, like a, a chalice of red wine, you know. And what we got back was this dance track. And not only that, it had like these weird sound effects all over it that sounded like a Las Vegas slot machine. And I, it just, it was just, it took us a while. We had to step back. Um, you know, as the song started doing really well and became a big hit, and now it's like an evergreen song, um, we learned to love it because it was successful and, and it's lasted all these years. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a heavier tune when we gave it to them. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you can't argue with I mean even though I may have not been such a fan of of what it sounded like and you as a songwriter on it were not maybe such a fan at the end of the day it's hard to argue with the success because here we are decades later and when Pat finally goes in the hall that's one of the songs she does cuz it's one of her iconic tracks. It was also not the 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 vibe of it was not made much better by the video which was had a lot of dancing in it. It really was a dance fest I, across the board. <laughs> and Pat's not a dancer. I mean, it looks like she was forced to sort of rock with the times, I guess, you know. <laughs> right. Um but you know, I will say it did really well because it was a great song. It was yes. a well-crafted song. And it went to number five. And, you know, to this day, I think it would have gone to number one if they had done it the way we heard it, you know. Um, but, you know, that's hindsight and that's a lot of what ifs. And I can't complain about the success of it. But and here's the other thing that is really hard as a songwriter is a lot of these artists would like people to think that they wrote that song. And, you know, out of all the people I've worked with, I think that probably Neil perpetuated that myth more than anybody. And that was hurtful to me and Mike because they didn't write that song. If they can, if they could write that song, they would have written it. And, you know, I go through this every year. I went uh, through this with Tina Turner, too, although she kind of made up for it when she wrote the prologue to my book, you know. But mm. we, we hardly, there's a lot of times when we don't get thanked, we don't get mentioned. I'm really good friends with Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's. We've been friends for like 35 years. She's in the book. And she was inducted with the Go-Go's last year. And she said she sat through the whole presentation with Tina. And there was never a mention about the writers. And she said, look, I know you've written nine songs for her, her biggest songs, some of them. And you've probably written more songs for her than anyone. And one of the reasons that Tina's always come to me is because she calls me her rock writer. And because she wants to rock. She doesn't want to sing blues and be a victim. She loves to rock. That's why people like the Stones and Bowie always would just embrace her on stage and you know, they all looked up to her and and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, I've even heard in the past, actually, Neil's even said it to me, where he feels he changed the song so much that they were practically writers on it. And I looked at him like, no, no, you weren't. And, and I have the demos. In fact, I did the audio book, and on the audio book, I narrated the whole thing. It's on Audible. And I have never-before demos of some of my biggest songs like I have love is the battlefield and the best and the warrior with Nick Gilder singing the lead vocal. And it's all there. It's all there. Anybody that wants to contest that, you know, uh, there's a big difference between producing and writing a song, just like there's a big difference between uh, being an actor or a screenwriter. They're different gigs, you know? So wait, that's interesting. So you're saying if people check out the audiobook of this, 
around you reading the book, you intersperse some of the audio of these demos? Correct. Oh, wow, that's really cool. So that would be a great, that's a great bonus to hearing, uh, getting the audiobook version as well, because uh, I appreciate you sending me a hard copy, but that's great to check out because that's a really nice added bonus. So people should yeah. definitely uh, check that out. You, you know, I, I, you know it's, it's interesting you bring that up, Holly, because I, of course, am not a musician and have never written a song in my life, but I, I have such an appreciation for songwriters, and I am, being such a geek, I do read liner notes, and I read who wrote the songs, and I read who produced and mixed records. I've been doing that since I was a kid, and I feel that way too, and I've actually brought it up that some of these artists, when they get honors or awards, they really should thank these people who wrote these songs for them because, uh, let's face it, I mean, that's a, a, a ultra important thing. But I think a lot of them like to create the illusion because, unfortunately, there aren't many people like me that go to those steps and take that in. I think they like to create the illusion that they're their songs. I, I mean, and I think it's unfortunate because I think credit should be doled out. There's no shame in it. There's tons of artists that have had huge success that never wrote a song, but I think the songwriter should get way more attention because unless you take the time to read a liner note, and now they're even harder to find in the streaming world, no you don't know. Yeah, well, I still love CDs, so I still get them when I can, but yeah, exactly. I mean, you don't even have a way to, to acknowledge it. Okay. You're unusual because the young, the youth of today, they just don't have the time. You know, they have 15 seconds for this talk video and 15 seconds for that. They don't even need to hear the whole song. Just get to the chorus. Don't bore us. That's it. They got the next one infomercial on how to make your lips bigger. It's just, you know, (laughs) but, but it's absolutely true. And that's the hard part. And I do talk about it in the book that they, what you said is so true. There's no shame in it. There's absolutely no shame that why not just come clean and say that, you know, just look at Elvis Presley. (laughs) I mean, come on, you know, didn't stop anybody from loving him, you know? Right, right, right. So, so okay, so a couple other things here. I, I want to keep you too long, but I love talking to you, and there's so much great stuff in the book. The song Obsession, Michael DeBar was on this show not long ago. Of course, he does a show on Sirius XM as well, but he was on to promote his documentary, and we had a great talk about this, about this song, which you co-wrote with him. And what I found interesting is, of all the songs, including... Tina Turner's The Best, which you co-wrote, which is a you know, massive, massive song. But that obsession, which is best known in America and is more of a dance track, but is best known in America for being recorded by a group called Animotion. And I, I worked in a record store when that came out, so I remember selling boatloads of it. But that song, of all your songs you say in the book, is actually the song that's been the most licensed for use. Is that right? Uh, no, actually, the best has, but it gets licensed a lot. Um, in fact, it's been licensed recently for the new season of American Horror Story, and there's this much-anticipated movie coming out called Cocaine Bear. I don't know if you've heard about it, but obsessions in that movie, which I think is kind of funny, although the story is quite tragic. Um, but no, it's licensed. It's been licensed so much. Uh, it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And I saw that documentary, by the way, and I love Michael to pieces, but I was a little annoyed at him because <laughs> there's a scene where he says he wrote Obsession in five minutes and it's made millions for him. And that's not true because he wrote it with me and it took more than five minutes. I wrote the music. 
um, and he wrote the lyrics. He walked in, and I just started playing the sequencer, and then we wrote the melody together. Um, so that's really the truth of that documentary. But that's, you know, that's water under the bridge. I sort of said something to him, and he didn't like it, and it was like, okay, let me just drop it now. <laughs> uh, uh, what, my, uh, Holly, when your songs get licensed for use in movies or commercials or TV shows or whatever it is, like Obsession or The Best or any of that, as a songwriter of those songs, do you have to approve that? Or once you write it and, and it's released into the world, it's like kind of like fair domain to do that as long as they pay? Well, here's the thing. If they want to re-record the song, and we're not talking about the master, if they want to re-record the song, anybody can cut it as long as, like you said, they pay you. They license the song and there's a certain fee and it usually goes through some like a Harry Fox agency and it's pretty cheap, you know? But if... If, if you then go on to have it in a film or a TV that's very different, then they have to talk to the publisher. And the publisher, whoever owns the copyrights is the one that gets to say, we'll license this to you for, say, Cocaine Bear or something. They have to own the copyrights. So you could be a songwriter and maybe you gave your copyrights away, so you don't really have any say on what happens to that tune. Um, and even the same as a songwriter. I mean, anybody can cut it as long as they pay you. I mean, rarely once in a while, sometimes if it's like Irving Berlin's A White Christmas or something, they have to go to the original publisher. But it's it's pretty accessible. And a lot of people cut it without even asking or licensing. And I mean, there's like so many versions on the Internet of the best. And I mean, unless they're actually selling and making money, you know, a good amount of money uh, with their recording, I don't really care that much if it's just a one off or whatever. You know, I'm sort of flattered more than anything. A mm. couple other quick things I want to hit you with as far as stuff in your your catalog of songs. Um, you worked with Heart, and you talk about uh, writing Never with Heart and the experience of working with Heart because you come into the band when they were really trying to figure it all out and get their career back and that self-titled record in in the mid-80s that Ron Nevison did and I know I've had Nevison on the show I know that he was really out there trying to find other writers to kind of reinvent Hart at that time and kind of a little bit of a similar situation than when you got as when you got involved with Kiss early on in that a song a song like Never which was a huge hit definitely when it came out was a little bit different than the heart that we knew in terms of Barracuda and the edgier stuff. Mm -hmm. Was so, that surprising to you that they were willing to go in that direction? Um, no, because you know what, when they first started out, what it was like the seventies when they first came out. And to be honest, like my favorite stuff is their early stuff. I, I mean, I'd even say that about Benatar, like, when, you know, she did the cover of You Better Run, and I talk about it, that in the book when I first saw that video, I think the times changed, and I, I think that they just sort of had to roll with it. And, you know, that's the part of the 80s that sometimes a lot of these artists, in retrospect, say they're almost embarrassed about, which I think is ridiculous, because it was just a different time period, and it was still good stuff. I mean, I remember reading Hall & Out saying, oh, the 80s, they're so embarrassed, but my God, they had so many hits memorable hits during the 80s like who cares if you're embarrassed about the shoulder pads or some of the outfits whatever but that was still like very powerful stuff and when the 80s came to an end like mtv you know as you know only too well like kind of died the m didn't even stand for music anymore 
and it just changed the, the their whole fa- format changed and it was sort of like the end of an era in a way you know uh everything from shoulder pads i mean it, it affected pop culture so much and pop culture affected it you know mm. so it's just you know i felt that it had to be a story that had to be told from the inside. You don't see a lot of really accurate, good peeks at behind the curtain with the eighties yet. And I think this is going to lead to a lot of other really good things, you know, whether it's a movie or a documentary, um, I'm, I've already got people approaching me and it's exciting. Yeah. Um, couple other quick ones. So you had a really, you know, not the best experience dealing with Rod Stewart. It sounds like from the book that you, you ended up actually playing keyboards in Rod Stewart's band. Um, and then you, you wrote a song or tried to write a song with Rod called love touch. Not the best, although the song did quite well, it was a very interesting situation. It sounds like trying to wrangle Rod and get him in a place to create that song. Well, he loved it. He was just, you know, he wasn't being really creative. He wanted to party and he wanted to horse around and be <laughs> mischievous. And it was very distracting. So eventually, I mean, I couldn't believe I had the boss to say this, but he came to my place and after two tries, I had already written much, a big part of the song and I left just enough there, which we songwriters do. You know, it's, it's crazy if you walk in there without something prepared because you have one opportunity and you just don't want to sit there hoping that you're going to catch lightning in a bottle. So I would always walk in with something. So I had already played in the chorus and we just had to write the verses and stuff. We had the music and he just, I don't know. He was just, he wasn't focusing. So I said to him, listen, just let me finish the song on my own. I, I know what to do and it, it'll probably get done a lot quicker. Are you cool with that? And he said, yeah, well, fine works for me and then he cut the song and he loved it he sent me flowers and he was wonderful I loved hanging out with him and and being with him but then because he liked me so much he was going to do an Asian tour and it was only going to be for three weeks or a month and he invited me to play the keyboards because the regular keyboard player Kevin was on tour with someone else so I said yes the bad experience was the band it wasn't so much him although you know, it was almost like high school with peer pressure. He acted completely different with me in front of the band than when we were hanging out a lot before that. And uh, that was some of the stuff that I wrote about. It was one of the few experiences where, you know, they just treated me like some dumb girl. I walked in, and when I first walked in, the guitarist looked at me like, who are you? Uh, we didn't order any food. Like, why are you here? And mm. I found that really, really insulting. And I told him who I was, and he just continued to ignore me. So anyway, the tour got canceled after some rehearsals, and uh, it was actually a relief because I thought, well, if they're going to be like this and I'm stuck in Japan with them, it's not going to be a healthy situation for me. So he had a big hit with it. He wasn't having hits at the time. It went to the top five, and, well, you'll read about it in the book. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah, we don't want to give too much away, but there's, there's, there's a great, and just along those lines, there's a you know story in there about writing with John Bon Jovi. The the only, the only co-write I believe you have on a Bon Jovi record is on a song called "Stick to Your Guns," which is on New Jersey, which I actually love that record and I love that song. Um, But there's a story. What's that? 
I love that song too. I'm sorry, someone. I guess I'm calling you from the phone, and when someone calls in, it kind of fades out. So, are you there? Oh, no worries. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, that. And yeah. there's a story in there about how you met John, and then ended up getting thrown in a pool at his house, and all of that. So people can read about that. And um, you know, you you say you weren't even a huge Bon Jovi fan, but to have been able to work with him at the time, you know, massive star is really cool. There's also something in the book that you talk about Holly, which I did not know. And you said that you very rarely talk about experiences where you write songs with people and they don't make it onto records, which of course happens, I would think as a songwriter, but you had, yeah. And you had an experience working with Ozzy Osbourne and you started writing a song with Ozzy called slow burn. And I'm curious what your takeaway was, because the one thing about Ozzy that almost everyone I've talked to universally has said, even going back to the earliest years of Black Sabbath, is he's not a songwriter. He he uh, even in Sabbath, he never wrote lyrics. Geezer Butler wrote all the lyrics. So what what was your experience like trying to create with Ozzy Osbourne? Did you find it that he did have the ability to contribute to, to writing songs? Well, very much so. I mean, I'm surprised to hear that because we wrote the lyrics together. I mean, it was my title. We finished, we didn't just start the song. We finished it. We demoed it. I still have the demo. Uh, Then he went on to record it and he called me up and played me it on the phone and it sounded brilliant. It was beautiful. And then I said to him, is it going to make it on the record? And he laughed. He said, darling, he said, it's going to be the first single you know he sputtered on the phone i was like oh great um and then it didn't make it on the record and that happens you know it's part of what i do and i have to suck it up and accept that but every time i would run into him after that for decades he kept apologizing for not recording the song and it was so endearing (laughs) to me and i love ozzy he's just a he's a he's ozzy you know and his memoir is great because it's I don't know if you've read it. It's very self-deprecating and funny as shit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my favorite ones. Uh, it was just, I was just glad for the experience. You know, a lot of this is just, it's the journey. And that was a very pleasant experience. Not only that, I really liked Sharon. She was wonderful to me. Um, and I had heard this rumor that she had not gotten along with Chapman. You know, he produced the Lita Ford duet that, uh, that well, he did all of Lita Ford's record, and I wrote a song on that called Stiletto. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow Sharon was managing Lita at the time, and I heard that she sent a box of shit to Mike. Which oh, there's a lot of stories out there like that. Yeah, I love that story. It's like good, <laughs> good for you. You know, it's, I, that's like the the female empowerment thing. She was always very nice to me, and. Has Mike Chapman person. has Mike Chapman confirmed that story, Holly? No, I don't think I've ever asked him that. Um, I should ask him that. <laughs> yeah, the thing about Ozzy with songs is the people I've talked to that have worked with him, because then in his solo career, uh, uh, he had a, a lot of the songs were written by Bob Daisley, especially all the lyrics. Mm-hmm. So the thing that it was always said was that he is he is. Uh, he he's great. He comes up with melodies, but that's pretty much the extent of it. But it it sounds like you, you know you caught him at a time where he was you know really working at contributing to the songwriting, which is cool. I I also want to one final thing, which I did not know, and we we got to talk about this because as you said, it's probably the biggest song in your catalog, and it's just 
everywhere always and that is a song simply called the best better known as maybe simply the best but the tina turner iconic massive song what i did not know about that until i read your book was that you actually uh intended that song for the artist paul young is that correct yes and he decided not to do it he passed and it's a really good chapter it's the last chapter in the book and it's pretty racy and pretty juicy and I actually, you know, I start out the chapter by saying, well, the best was not written for Tina Turner, but it was meant for her. And I went through this whole journey and a rewrite where I had to re-register the song after Bonnie Tyler did the song. Um, and I mean, who knew it was going to be the biggest song in, in my catalog? But I, in my acknowledgments, I was pretty cheeky and I thanked Paul Young for not recording the song. And when I <laughs> talked to him, I kind of tease him about it, and he has like no sense of humor about it, which is pretty funny. Um, well, it's never well, too late. It's ne it's never it's Holly. It's never too late for Ozzy to do slow drain. I mean, there's plenty of artists that songs 30 years ago that sat on the shelf. They do, and you know, Paul Young could do another remake of uh, could do a remake of the best. I would think maybe he'd have another hit with it. No, I don't think he deserves it now. I think I went to the right person. <laughs> Anybody else? There's look a lot of people have sung it. Everybody from like Wynonna Judd to um, Celine Dion to James Bay to this actor Luke. Oh, what's his name? Uh, Rick. Oh, this is embarrassing. I'm having one of those senior moments. So many people have done it. Um, I don't care now if he does it or not. I mean, I sort of. How do you top the best? First of all, the name of it. How do you top that with anybody else? after Tina's done it. It's her song. It's the song she's most remembered for, aside from what's love got to do with it, you know? Is that the song in your catalog? Is the best the song in your catalog that has been the most lucrative for you as far as what you've written? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's actually earned probably, as much as all my other songs have done well, it's probably earned 80% of my catalog. It's a big, it's a big, earner and continues to be i mean it gets licensed for everything you know i think it was that's so nice last year look even biden when he did his victory speech he played the best and that was a great surprise because i was just watching and i had no idea that he was going to do it so um that was very fulfilling I, I've said this before you came on the air when I was setting up you coming on and it, it ties into like the appreciation I have for songwriters because you guys are the in a lot of ways the unsung heroes of the industry and I and I'm just so enamored with the the talent to be able to create something that's so enduring and impactful that will last long after you're gone and and you just it's just out there for for you as as somebody who is a songwriter on a song like the best or the warrior or any of these big songs we talked about love is a battlefield i mean how did when like some of these in some cases you these were written 30 35 years ago that you that you wrote these songs what is it like for you like if you're in a supermarket or you're watching a tv show or something and these songs that are your bait like your babies that you hear them and they're your words or they're your music or whatever i mean I imagine that's got to be just an amazing feeling, but is there also at times some frustration, kind of like what we talked about before? It's just like, 
people should fucking know that this is mean, <laughs> that I created this. Like, is there is there that balance there sometimes? Well, you know, well, first I got inducted into the Songwriting Hall of Fame, and that was pretty validating. You know, that's the beauty of writing a memoir is you get to say your story and you get to say yeah. the things you love and you don't love. And I made a choice to be a songwriter. So someone, one interviewer said to me, don't, isn't it painful to give your songs away? Um, I think if I was a recording artist, I might feel that way, but I'm not. I'm an independent songwriter, and I get to, like Johnny Appleseed, I get to plant my seed here and there and there and there, and they all come in at once, and that works just fine for me, and I'm very proud of my career, and I feel pride. I hear my songs in the supermarket all the time, and you know, I'm kind of looking around like and thinking nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> in fact, you know what? Oprah Winfrey has no idea that like a uh, like a white Jewish girl from New York wrote all these songs for Tina, who she adores. And I, I have videos where she's singing every word and she's obsessed with Tina. And I have to kind of just say to myself, you know what? You've been doing this a long time. You know you wrote the song. Um, it was interesting because I started to tell the story about Kathy Valentine when she got inducted and they did the Tina presentation and Tina wasn't there because, you know, she was having some health problems. So they showed a video and it was, you know, she spoke in the video and said, thank you. And Kathy said, you know, there was no mention of any of the writers. And I know that you wrote like so much for her. And she said, maybe, maybe they're idiots and they didn't, they didn't say anything. She, she said, but I knew. I knew, and I said to myself, good for you, Holly, because, you know, we're friends. He said, I hear you, and I see you, and that meant a lot to me. And that's kind of what I have to do with myself is, like, I don't have to say a word. I can just smile inwardly and go, you know what? You did all right, kid. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, you got to read the book, everybody. It's called I Am the Warrior, uh, written by my guest, Holly Knight. It's fantastic. And, Holly, just in closing yeah. – Two quick questions, and I'll let you go. Would um, We're seeing and hearing, and I'm reporting on it all the time, of these deals that are being made where artists are selling for a huge lump sum their catalogs, their songs, what have you. Have you done that, or have you been approached to do that? And if not, would you consider doing it? I did do it. I was one of the earlier people to do it, and I did it with a fantastic uh, – I was their second acquisition. They're called Primary Wave. Oh, I know them. Yeah. I, I had the owner. I've had the owner of the company on this show, actually. Who, Larry Mistel? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a buddy of mine. I, I adore him. They're a great company. They have just a really good ethic. They're fair people. It's a win-win for everybody. Um, they've gotten so many. Um, I mean, I was on Schitt's Creek and Glow. My songs were. You know, Sh I was on Schitt's Creek three times. I was on Glow, Stranger Things. They just, like I said, they got me cocaine beer. They're always getting me covers. And so they sort of tastefully market the stuff without exploiting it in a cheesy way. And, yeah, so the money was, like, it was, it's hard to say no. And, you know, times being what they are, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow politically or with the pandemic. So, Sometimes a bird in the hand, if you know, if it's the right bird, it, it, it's worth it. But at the same time, I will say that I knew there was a law that after 35 years, you get your intellectual property back. You don't have to pay for it. So let's say someone paid $3 million for like a song or a catalog. You could go to them and say, I want it back. And they have to give it to you. They can't even sell it to you. So I've gotten back 
because I gave those copyrights away in the beginning of my career unknowingly. That was always the thorn in my side. And the justice and the nice ending of this story is I got back 100% of my copyrights for songs like Love is a Battlefield, Better Be Good to Me, Obsession, The Warrior. Um, and the best, I was already co-publishing, so I'm going to get some of that. It goes by the year that you wrote it. Um, so I sort of, and and I knew when, when I had sold a portion of my catalog that this was coming down the pipeline or maybe I wouldn't have done it. So this wasn't part of the deal. So it's worked out. It's been pretty good. <laughs> well, good for you. Good. That's good. That's great to hear. And just in closing, what are you working on now? Well, you know, a couple of things. I have a new band that I have helped put together called La Crush. I'm not in it as far as touring in the band, but I'm the producer. And we have a single out. It's an acronym called AMFYOYO, which you can figure out what it means. But the M and the F, you can pretty much figure out what that is. It's actually a very empowering song. Um, but the beauty of this band is it's all women. It's a collective. So it has a lead singer that's a mainstay, and it has a guitarist who's sort of a um, I want to say she's a Steve Vai protege. Like every musician in this band is as good as it gets. If you were to hold her up next to like, you know, the top musicians out there. And that was important to me because that's never really been done in that way. I mean, the Go-Go's were probably the most successful all women band, but this is like another level of like, imagine muse, like, except it's all women, you know? So I'm working mm. on that. And that just came out. Um, and it's also a platform because it's a collective where other women can come in and play on the bass and drums and do a few songs and then leave, which is kind of fun, you know. Um, and also for anybody that's in New York that happens to hear this, uh, I am playing a show at a place called The Cutting Room on Monday, and it's a book release party where I'm going to read excerpts. Um, I just found out last night that Patti Smythe is going to sing The Warrior, and I have uh, another great singer, Lena Hall, who won a Tony for Hedwig and the Angry Inch. She's an incredible rock singer. She's going to be singing. So if you're in New York on the 19th at 7 o'clock, I'll be there. I'll be signing books, selling books, and just dishing out the dirt and playing great songs. Well, that's awesome. I'm, unfortunately, I won't be in town, but everybody, if you are listening in the New York City area, go and see Holly. And uh, that's a great venue as well. It sounds like it's going to be a, a great evening. All okay, right, everybody, check out I Am the Warrior audiobook is available as well. You just heard some great bonuses about that. And of course, the book is available in any of your uh, book outlets. And Holly, it's uh, great to talk to you again. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the amazing career and look forward to catching up some more soon. Always a pleasure talking to you, Eddie. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Take care. Okay. You too. Happy bye holidays. Bye. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. Well, great talking with Holly. I appreciate her coming on again. Her book is out now. Check it out. If you love some behind the scenes stories and the origins and backstory on her life and also how she ended up writing or co-writing some of the biggest songs that are out there that you hear every day in some way, shape, or form. Thank you for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Again, follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Twitter. And be sure to listen to me every day if you're in the U.S. or Canada, which most of you are, on Sirius XM Radio. You can hear Trunk Nation Monday through Friday live 3 to 5 Eastern Time on Faction Talk, that's channel 103, or anytime on demand 
on the SiriusXM app. Don't forget about Trunk Nation on Mondays as well on Hair Nation, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern, Terrestrial Radio Show, and, of course, this podcast. A lot of ways to connect, and there are a total of eight shows a week. So be sure to check them out and listen and connect and keep up with everything happening in the world of rock music. Appreciate you listening to the podcast. Have a good week, everybody. And, uh, oh, yeah, if you're heading to Rock Island next week in Key West, Florida, I'll be there once again hosting, uh, covering all the events and uh, bringing the bands on stage Tuesday through Saturday next week. So get ready for that. That should be a lot of fun. Greatly looking forward to it. And go Giants! See you guys next Thursday for another podcast. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.